0: Welcome to The Anthroposopher, where we bring anthroposophy to life through interviews, conversations, and explorations. I'm Lars Scappaticci, your host. On this episode of The Anthroposopher, I interview Conor Habib. Connor Habib is a social activist, a writer, and the creator of the podcast Against Everyone with Conor Habib. On today's show, we talk about having a Michaelic year, occultism and politics, how he came to anthroposophy. And why anthroposophy is so important to the future right now. Here's a little warning about this episode. At around minute 31, Connor Habib starts talking a bit about politics. This podcast isn't political, but Connor Habib has a lot to say about politics on his own podcast. If you're not into politics, skip to about minute 37, and the content goes straight back to anthroposophy, though it never really veers off that path the entire time. Enjoy the show. And if you like what you're hearing and want to learn more about Anthroposophy, become a member of the ASA at Anthroposophy.org or explore our whole library of webinars on topics like meditation, death and dying, Michaelmas, the fifth gospel, and pretty much anything you want to learn about Anthroposophy at Anthroposophy.org slash webinars. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out about our sponsor, Educare Do. There's a purchase code at the end that help support the Anthroposophical Society and also get to great course content through EducareDo. Hey Connor. Hello, Laura. How are you doing?
1: I'm, I'm doing great.
0: <laughs> I'm really excited to have you on my show and I have to say that um, I discovered you before anyone else. <laughs>
1: Well, I think there was at least two people who discovered you before me, or oh, discovered okay. me before you.
0: Yeah, you're right. There are two, and that's our parents, because actually, <laughs> just disclosure for everybody listening, Connor's my brother. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. And your your infamy and fame is, uh, you know, world renowned at this point. I can't even believe I'm <laughs> your sister still. Are you sure I'm still your sister? Um, we'll see any- by the
1: end of this episode, yeah.
0: <laughs> but um, I, I'm really particularly excited because uh, – you have a great story about how you met Anthroposophy, how we're both anthroposophists and how we weren't um, raised in a house with Anthroposophy. So I thought maybe we could start there and just um, let the conversation go. And we, we're really hoping that we won't sort of dissolve into giggles and like <laughs> bad jokes, uh, but that might happen just for everybody that's <laughs> listening, just so you know. Um, yeah, yeah, so can you, tell, can you tell everybody how you kind of um, met Anthroposophy?
1: Yeah, so um, I was in grad school and I was studying with uh, uh, bio, a biologist, microbiologist, geoscientist, um, very world-renowned and famous scientist, Lynn Margulies, who developed the Gaia theory with James Lovelock and discovered or approved, I should say, that um, cells with organelles are symbioses of different organisms. Um, and created a whole new theory of evolution, all that. Anyway, um, she would take me to conferences uh, that she did. And at one of those conferences, there was a little table at the conference that had a flyer for this place called the Nature Institute in New York. And they were just about to do a three-month program, I think, uh, So, on Goethean science. I had no idea that Goethe had anything to do with Rudolf Steiner. I didn't really know what it was. I just looked at it and was like, oh, this seems cool. And she said, oh, if you can get into that program, you have to go. And I was like, but Lynn, I, I'm in grad school for two things. I'm in grad school for Organismic and Evolutionary Biology and Creative Writing right now at UMass. And this is in New York State. She, she, you know, like you just didn't, like that was a poor choice uh, on my part to question her because she was someone that you did not <laughs> question. So anyway, I found myself, um, you know, going to this program at the Nature Institute, uh, run by Craig and Henrika Holdridge, um, and having a whole sort of host of other lecturers coming in, Gertrude uh refused, Douglas Sloan, um, Martin Lockley, and uh, Art Science, and some others. And, um, you know, suddenly living you know, aside, I had an an extra apartment then in Ghent, New York, living across the street from Waldorf School next to a biodynamic farm, talking about Rudolf Steiner all the time. His name had come up many times, but never in that kind of serious capacity, you know, so it was definitely uh, much more intense. And so I came to him through science, basically. And um, yeah, it, it stuck with me ever since. And then, but you know, at some point in there, I bought um, the Arts and Their Mission it was the first book I read of Steiner's, um, his lecture series. And I read it and I thought, what the hell is this? I didn't understand any of it. And then as soon as I was done, I read it again. Um, like li- literally, i I stopped and then I started reading it again. I finished and I started reading again. And I felt something opening um, within me. And I thought, well, this is, a have never had this feeling when I've read a book before. <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, I was also, I had had a lifelong interest in um, occultism and magic and the supernatural and religion and theology and theurgy, which is very strange because you and I didn't grow up with any real presence of religion in our lives other than, you know, um, the, the surrounding area, which was a rather religious area, but yeah.
0: So there's this woman that you don't argue with and she ends up sort of <laughs> saying, get to this place. And then uh, honestly, you sort of your, your life path begins to unfold from there. And it's been amazing to um, watch your life path unfold. So can you say a little bit that beyond what happened? So, you, so you, you're completing your um, MFA, you're studying with Lynn you go to the nature institute and this is all on the on the east coast of the u.s and the whole time i know i mean you've been writing the whole the whole time i mean as long as i can remember you've been reading um, really terrifying books and writing (laughs) semi-terrifying things um which we're going to loop back to that later because there's a pretty exciting thing that's happening for you around uh writing terrifying things um and then what happens next so so you can that
1: training yeah well so the so the nature institute was very um it was i mean there was a lot of theory there of course but it was very practice based um and you know anybody that gets an opportunity to do any courses there should it really um changed the the direction of my thinking the 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 ways that my thinking flows and i wouldn't say that it necessarily brought me into a place of um, living, thinking, but I definitely uh, re, uh, yeah, redirected the 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 motion and the current of my thinking. And so as that's happening, I, you know, I'm starting to read the Steiner lectures, and I'm putting together these other pieces of symbiosis and um, and literature and all that, and it's all sort of coming together in this strange kind of nexus, and that's turning into practice as well. Um, you know, around the same time I was doing the work of Byron Katie, who is interestingly starting to show up in more anthroposophical texts. Um, I found that really interesting, and what she does is she, I mean, it's essentially Taoist in a way. She's married to um, Stephen Mitchell, the theologian, and her project basically pulls apart and separates thinking and feeling. It's not so good on the willing part, but the thinking and feeling part, she really pulls those two apart. And so that was this therapeutic thing that's happening for me at the same time. So it's all happening, (laughs) like all at, at once, you know, like around 27, 28, 29, 30, you know, and, um, and so then that starts turning into practice. And then eventually when I move to San Francisco um, and my life changes pretty, pretty dramatically then, and that, that's when I start this, you know, spiritual science uh, discussion group um, and deepen the practice there. And I'm just running this thing at my apartment um, in San Francisco that meets every two weeks for about two years and uh, mediating and bringing exercises and readings and having in-group discussion and all that kind of stuff as well.
0: Yeah, that's great. I remember you driving, moving from um, Amherst and driving across the country to San Francisco and then coming up to visit me in, um, we were living in (laughs) Vancouver, British Columbia, and I was super duper pregnant. Actually, didn't I give birth while you were there? Yeah. I think I did. (laughs) (laughs) My first child. But I remember you visiting and um, starting to talk about Rudolf Steiner. And I was like... Not so nice about it, uh, because we we were really raised in this. Uh, it was sort of like it wasn't like an atheism worship kind of house, you know, where intellectualism is the only thing that exists. It wasn't like that, but it was definitely um, a rejection of religion. But you and it, I were yeah. always like, right? We were like looking for poltergeist in the closet and like, <laughs> you know, Ouija board. I remember like reading the Bible, like the apocalypse with like my best friend, Sam at the time, and we were just like, you know, going in there and looking at it, like it was so secret. And so we, yeah. we had this sort of like mystical, uh, I mean, even yeah. Like pastor, yeah, the friendly ghost we were into, you know, like anything <laughs> right. to do with spirit. Um, and then you came up and you, I remember you being so different. I was like, wow, he is really like, this." not that you weren't doing this before, but not in the same way you were really listening. Um, Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. just such a difference in your, your quality of listening and, um, the stillness within you was, it was just this maturity that, you know, when someone's your little brother, there's like a thing they have with your little (laughs) brother, but I was like, who is this guy? He's so mature. no, well, go. I was going to
1: say it's interesting. We had these, you know, we had all these sort of Syrian folk tales in our life when we were kids too. Where, you know, the the world was definitely different than a lot of people around us, and it was, you know, enchanted. I think in in a different way. You know, I encountered really. Um, sort of dark stuff and I think you did too when we were kids and I'd always sort of wondered like why so early like how did I come to all this like really dark you know spiritual stuff when I was like eight years old you know weird and so I think we we had these strange encounters with um, the forces of light and darkness at a very very young age and then we both just sort of went on our own trajectories and came back into investigating them you know as adults with different different eyes but I do remember that that trip to Vancouver because I told you about it and I said something about Christ and you were just really put off and you know I remember you telling your your husband who is also now very obviously sympathetic to anthroposophy and you and and you're both like what you know and I I was upset but I just also thought "Hmm, well they'll think about it and now um now who's laughing is what I have to say but uh, (laughs) You no, right. <laughs> <I did not. laughs> no, no, no. You know what? Like, it's not, it's not even that. I just, I just find it really interesting that that's, um, that it met such resistance and then suddenly flourished because I think that that's, you know, um, maybe instructive for people that are trying to bring anthroposophy into the world and meeting some resistance, you know, it's like, put time, so things take time, you know, and also so, things that sound so strange to somebody that, is not in it you know can take a lot of a lot of time but it shows up and it comes back it's recursive you know
0: yeah I think that's a really wonderful thing to say because let's talk about your amazing podcast against everyone with Connor Habib I feel like you take on these issues all the time and um Especially, I feel like you've been talking about anthroposophy quite a bit lately on on the show, and you have speakers, I mean, you just had the lead singer from Fugazi on your show, and people (laughs) that, I mean, maybe not everybody knows, like, that's Mm -hmm. amazing, that's amazing, but you've had people like Ari Thornton and, you know, people that are known in the anthroposophical circles, like Lisa Romero, too, and I, I think in the beginning of that, <laughs> and John Bloom, exactly, who is yeah. the General Secretary of the Anthroposophical Society in America. <laughs> um, and so I, I noticed, I think in the beginning of this um, interview with Ari Thornton, you sort of talked about some of the barriers people have to um, encountering, you know, some yeah. of the words, uh, you know, and... I don't know, I just have to say, I had this dream last night about um, intellectuality. And I was thinking about intellectuality and spirit, and um, these sort of barriers um, with words and language. And I feel like your podcast kind of tries to tear that down. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Mm, mm. Yeah, so the podcast basically started, um, I, I mean, I had a bunch of failed attempts to start a podcast, um, but I was on so many other people's podcasts um, as a result of uh, the sex worker activism and the sort of sex work public persona I had for a long time as well, which maybe we'll get into, maybe not. But um, I was asked to speak on a lot of people's podcasts. So I, at a certain point, I i mean, at this point, I've probably done hundreds of podcasts, not as good as this one, of course, but hundreds of podcasts. And um, I was always kind of a little bored, um, with like 90% of them, because I always thought, you know, as soon as we start getting into the real depth, like we change topics. And I just thought, why is that? Like even that is an instance of people being sort of afraid to approach something that might have a spiritual, uh, uh, thickness to it or, or intensity to it. So even, even on that level. So I just decided, and I, you know, I had all these really interesting friends, you know, who were doing great things in public or public intellectuals or activists or occultists or, you know, writers, whatever. And I thought, you know, these conversations will have value and something, you know, Robert McDermott said, uh, quoting, or I think paraphrasing Steiner, um, you know, at some point to me was, you know, the conversation will become the new Eucharist. Now, I don't think that my podcast is the new Eucharist, but I think that um, demonstrating uh, conversations that go where they need to go and aren't restrained by any kind of fear of depth um, or apprehension about, uh, uh, yeah, apprehension about complexity um, or the spiritual world, um, you know, and, and those kinds of difficulties and challenges and, you know, flourishes. I think that that's something that I always wanted to do. And I wanted to do it a lot of times with people who had no sort of, at least publicly admitted spiritual life. So a lot of people that I've been on my show are leftist activists, um, you know, uh, Franco V. Fabrardi, the anarcho-communist theorist, you know, like, I'm sure it's the first time he's ever talked about Rudolf Steiner on a podcast, you know, <laughs> like, he's used to talking about Marx, and um Gilles Deleuze, and Felix Guattari, and, you know, these other sort of people that are not in the anthroposophical realm, having, you know um, so, you know, democratic socialists on the show, I think everybody has a spiritual life and everybody's work has an intersection with spirit. And, you know, I think that people, for whatever reason, I think because I've lived in so many different kinds of worlds and and had so many different kinds of lives, are able to talk with me about those kinds of things, which they might otherwise be frightened to discuss. And I think that is something that I talked about a little bit in the beginning of that episode with Ari Thorson, like, you know, there's an obfuscating force or being really um, between us and discussing spiritual topics. And how do we get people through those? And I know that I've done it by being, uh, you know, an outsider to every, place, every sort of social niche I was ever supposed to be in, I was always an outsider to it. And if I got too comfortable in it, I kicked myself out once again. Because when you do that, you become a bridge, Um, you become, you know, um, you know, a rainbow bridge, (laughs) in some sense, you become a place, you become something that helps people cross over into difficult or unknown territory. So, um, yeah.
0: Mm, Have you read The Green Snake and The Beautiful Lily?
1: Yeah, long a long time ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hear a lot of that in in with this bridge and with uh, conversation being the new Eucharist. I mean, it's conversation worth more than gold is is part of that story, and the snake, you know, becomes the bridge. Uh, at least in my you know recollection of the story, and I think that yeah, because you have been. I mean, you're doing both of those things, exactly, as you said, um, becoming becoming the bridge because you have been in so many different worlds. Um, and maybe we, we can talk about that a little bit, too, because it also makes you one of the most interesting people I know um, in that you you have lived in so many realms. And honestly, I find that when I talk to um, anthroposophists, I remember being super relieved um, because my husband, you know, we we've, we've moved a whole bunch of places and don't don't necessarily stay in any place for you know too long. And then when we met people that were um, anthroposophists or anthroposophers, uh, we found that they had they were all doing the same thing too. <laughs> they were like, oh well, when I lived in England, oh well, I had this life and then I had this life and then I had this. Life. So can you talk about your lives a little bit? <laughs> I know your life up to at least um, eighteen. Right.
1: <laughs> so after that, after that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, after we were talking about grad school a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was a weird intersection because I was studying the humanities, but also the sciences and then also you know, spiritual. So it's like you're not supposed to study the sciences if you're in the humanities, You're not supposed to be spiritual if you're in the sciences. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I went, I moved to San Francisco and did um and was a gay porn performer for almost 10 years. And um <laughs> and that certainly you're not supposed to do that if you're a spiritual person, you know, um not right. supposed to, you know, is the obviously I'm putting quotes around that. But um and then, you know, deepening my commitment to uh to Christianity, um, in it, it, that was also very interesting. <laughs> and then, um, you know, and trying to understand and sort of, uh, look into sex in a way that, you know, certainly, uh, we don't have a lot from Rudolf Steiner about it. So, um, you know, e- even someone who has written and spoken so much about that, it's, you're kind of on your own, um, looking into it. And I understand why, or, or at least I, I understand a little bit of why he didn't, go into it um now but i you know so it that brought its own challenges as well trying to do that work um while i was doing sex work and then activism and advocacy for sex workers is basically what i moved into not to rescue them because that they don't sex workers don't need to be rescued they need support um and they need to be heard and understood and met with in solidarity as to their needs. Um, And then, you know, from there, uh, basically moving on to doing the podcast and that bringing me to, you know, the place where I was ready to fulfill a lifelong dream of moving to Ireland, which I finally have done, you know, when, after I turned 40, um, you and I came to Ireland with our family when, I was, I think 15 and you were 18 or 14 and 17, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'd been thinking about it ever since. I mean, it profoundly affected me and I knew it was my destiny to live here. I mean, nothing, nothing has ever been clearer in my life, I should say, than, than the need to, to live here. So, um, I And I have no idea what that means. I don't always know what these sort of destiny things mean. But I do know, and this is true on a lot of levels, whether people are anth- anthroposophists or not, that following your desire um, honestly, you know, is really important. Um, and so I, I f- you know, I followed it, you know, to the extent that it was like y- all throughout my life. It's like, okay, what, what is meaningful here? What is the thing that's you know, calling me here? What am I being called to do? And, um, and struggling with that constantly through every iteration. I mean, not, you know, maybe people might think that the sex work part is the most struggle, but in fact, in some ways that that was less. So, but like in every iteration, like, what am I doing here? Why, how, you know, how did I come to be this person? What can I offer in this role? And, um, Yeah. And again, that's makes it easy for me to speak with other people um, in all different, you know, on the show, like I said, there's, there's leftists, but there's writers, there's musicians, there's anthroposophists, there's other cultists, there's sort of different people in magical traditions. There's, you know, um, war war zone journalists. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. Um, But the idea is to you know follow that and be able to listen and have dialogue with people out of interest you know but i don't do any i think you're good at this on this show too like i don't ever i don't ever even really disagree with people like disagreement is so not valuable to me um like what i'd rather do is take an interest in the person and that's what we try to do on the show always it's a conversation you know
0: Absolutely. I mean, uh, so there's a few things about what you just said. I remember coming back from that trip to Ireland where we went with our mom, um, our our dear mother in heaven. Um, Nice to have dad. Yeah. So anyway, we went there and we got back and we, were we just crying and crying and crying and crying when we got back? Like, or we didn't want to leave and we were just sobbing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like this tuning into and you know, I heard you say this. It's like this, this rudder, like this, um, this physical feeling of like there's some sort of destiny piece in there. And I, I, maybe that's why the anthroposophers that I've met and that we've met, we find that they they do, as you said, they follow their that feeling which could be a feeling of desire or just a feeling of something much deeper um that is trying to guide them to something new and so here you are back in ireland a place of um i remember having these sandwiches that were just like an inch thick of butter and ham <laughs> <laughs> we thought they were the best sandwiches we'd ever had in our lives um in ireland and any time in our life that was the best sandwich ever but um sort of getting you back to that spot. And, um, and now, you know, going back to this intellectuality thing, you're in a, in a doctoral program, right? So you're studying. Mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all these sort of things that may seem... Um, divergent or opposite to people where you know you have this very strong academic piece and then also this super strong spiritual exploration piece but the doctor it's sort of allowing you to explore both at the same time right
1: yeah 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 i'm studying um people who have or investigate supernatural encounters um with entities supernatural beings here and how that affects their lives you know how that affects their conception of reality And how that affects the material conditions of their lives. Are they pathologized, ridiculed? You know, if they have a haunted house, are they having trouble selling it? That kind of stuff. Um, You know, that's the sort of exoteric version of the project. The more esoteric version is to sort of identify, again, that obfuscating being, you know, the thing that keeps us in place when it comes to spiritual encounters. One of the things that I think a lot of us know is that most people have had a supernatural or spiritual encounter. And we, you know, at at some, well, we're always having them, you know, I mean, we can stand back and say that all, you know, all experiences are, you know, spiritual. so I, I I say that to communicate to all the seasoned anthroposophists that are listening, but of course, you know, like the, the world that is more humanistic or in certain religious traditions might say, well, it's all just sort of material and, you know, whatever, but, and and they wouldn't identify everyday experiences as spiritual. But if you see a ghost or a fairy, you know, um, then you have a different <laughs> you have a different experience on your plate. Um, and you know, why is it that so many people have had experiences like that but have trouble talking about them? What is happening there? Um, why are people uh, ridiculed? And also, interestingly, like why is <laughs> you know you can really see the kind of, I realize this is blasphemy on an anthroposophical podcast, but the truth of psychoanalysis <laughs> and, and, and re- repression because you can see the supernatural entity showing up in popular culture narratives all the time in wildly popular ways in horror movies, you know, um, and in horror novels and in sort of ghost hunting TV shows and stuff. So like we, people flock to that as entertainment you know, as a kind of compromised solution to the repression that they experience in their lives around the experiences. So I think it's, you know, uh, that's really interesting. You know, it's finding its kind of way in uh, however it can. And I mean, that's also, that's always been interesting to me about horror novels and movies is like, you know, they're one of the only places where uh, spirituality exists in popular culture, (laughs) like squarely. So that's also fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, that is a great way of talking about it. And uh, just so people, <laughs> people probably don't know why it's heretical to talk about psychoanalysis. So let's like not even go there. I think that was super- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, you're right. That that is why people go there. And, and it's like the second option. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I don't know. Habitative it finds ones. its way
1: it all yeah, finds, its it way. finds
0: its way exactly yeah. that's right so let's let's jump over to that because that's really exciting you have something very exciting going on with your-
1: <laughs> well oh, yeah. yeah i mean i have a I have a novel coming out next year um called hawk mountain um from norton in the u.s and penguin Doubleday day in ireland in the uk it's not it's not a supernatural horror novel. It's a novel, it's a horror novel about love essentially. Um,
0: that is so, horrible. No. yeah,
1: <laughs> the most, the most horrifying thing. I mean, it is like, you know, it's one of those things where love is a real force, you know, um, that when it becomes distorted, uh, can become really damaging. So between this guy and his, his high school bully, you know, find each other later in life, 15 years later. And, um, have a really sort of tense encounter, but then end up sort of cohabitating in this house, um, and things kind of spiral out of control from there. Um, it's very, you know, if if people listening like Patricia Highsmith, I think that's the the who wrote *Talented Mr. Ripley*, *Strangers on the Train*. That's kind of the closest go to, yeah.
0: That was the most I've ever heard about it. So everybody is hearing it along with me. That's really exciting. Are there any female roles in the movie? Like, can <laughs> you I get be in, in on that? Yeah. I'll probably have to be like the old grandmother. Um, yeah. <laughs> just like the person looking. Uh, do you remember we used to read that one book um, where there's, like, some noises, and the person's in the kitchen, and then the shade flies up.
1: Flies What's happening up, in that story is there's a jigsaw puzzle. She gets a jigsaw yes, puzzle. Yes. It's actually really meta in this really interesting way. It's, um, I mean, it's a story that's in a lot of, like, scary stories to tell, but it was yes. in this book that you and I read as kids tales for the midnight hour, and is this woman gets a jigsaw puzzle and she's putting it together and slowly she realizes that the image in the puzzle is in the room she's in and then the last piece is like a picture of a face looking in the window at her but the shade is down as soon as she puts it in the shade flies up and she looks and there's someone looking in um but i mean the great great like great horror story about like, the secret and the law of attraction, basically, you know, like, you brought that into being, like, you didn't, you didn't have to do the puzzle, but your constant, like, curiosity and the drawing, the drawing of it towards you, so, yeah. Oh,
0: God, (laughs) I've never, like, analyzed it in that way, thank you. So, you're bringing Anthroposophy more onto the podcast, why is it important right now, like?
1: Yeah, Um, I think there are a lot of reasons why is extremely has always been important but i think right now especially you know we are at the beginning of this year i was on a podcast that my friend gordon white runs called rune soup and i i said you know it was in january and i said you know this is going to be the most michaelic year that many of us have ever experienced in our lives and i sort of went on to explain what that meant and basically that um you know, we're going to have to do a lot of of the hard stuff that we don't normally do. We're going to have to endure a lot. We're going to have to go through a lot. And through that work, we'll align ourselves with the being that will assist us, you know, and that will assist humanity. And in fact, some of our actions, you know, will kind of turn into uh, strength and world event uh, through that being. So I think... um, you know, just for that reason, and it's very important, I think, for us all to pay attention on Michael Moss every year, but this year in particular in the West, um, so-called Western world is very important. But more to the point, I mean, I would say, like, the 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 left. I won't assume that all anthroposophists are down with the left, right? And in fact, some ways leftist politics have been one of the, the worst enemies to a truly spiritual uh, politics. But, the, but nevertheless, you know, the left is filled with ideas of uh, making the world a better place and helping people. The right is too, but, um, but they, they very clearly don't enact it, you know, on most levels you know, the left has become, I think, quite aware of what a failed project it's been for a long time. Um, you know, and this year with the defeat of Bernie Sanders in the primary and Jeremy Corbyn, um, you begin to see that like actually dialectical materialism, in other words, like a kind of, how do I explain that? Just a sort of like theoretical uh, idea of materialism as encompassing all things that aren't just sort of eminently material, like the way we talk to each other, the way that, you know, buildings look, all that kind of stuff. We, we begin to see that, that that leftist idea is just, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Um, and that there are the spiritual truths and spiritual realities, but the left has essentially banished um, spirituality um, from itself, you know, for the most part, with good reason. You know, it, after World War II, a lot of the theorists, you know, who were really invested in sort of uh, recreating the left, like Adorno and so on, they saw how the Nazis had employed and exploited occultism, um, and really hurt a lot of people with it. But the problem was, they didn't think it was real. They just thought it was like a kind of mind control technique, because they didn't really understand that there was a reality to what was happening there. And so... The other thing that the left has really banished is pleasure and sexuality. So that's a whole other thing. And we as anthroposophists would do well not to fall into that trap by creating a kind of austere, neutral color, um, pleasureless version of anthroposophy. Um, But I would say that now there's space, you know, the problem is, sorry, this is a really long winded answer to your question, but it's, that's okay. Uh, I think it's, it's a complicated question you ask. The the, the the problem is the right is using magic and occultism all the time. Uh, it's very obvious that they are. Um, and in, in all sorts of ways, whether it's just the power of positive thinking, or it's, you know, a bunch of people touching, a bunch of world leaders touching a glowing orb, or, you know, these are all, by the way, these are all like just sort of mainstream things that you can read in mainstream news outlets. So I'm not going down some like weird rabbit hole. Like we can see that these things are happening um, with neoliberal and right uh, political figures. So what are we going to do? Like, it doesn't matter if you don't believe in spirituality. (laughs) Like if, even if you didn't believe in it at all, like the people and institutions in power do. So it's time to catch up. (laughs) Otherwise, you're just totally lost because they're using all these tools. And so it's really important to investigate what's going on there, not just as an act of resistance. I mean, of course, it's also about, you know, the development of our own being and, you know, and of the cosmos itself. But I think, you know, that task is right there for us right now. And a lot of people are just seeking meaning right now. And spirituality and the, you know, good versions of spirituality like anthroposophy offer that up. Um, So that's the challenge. I mean, that's really the challenge is like, how do we infuse our political efforts and our tending to the social organism with a a sort of true spiritual, you know, impulse. The, The simpler way of saying it is that, if we ask ourselves what it means to be human, what is the human being, and unfurl our politics um, and our other concerns out of that, then then we get we 're closer to getting it right, you know or correct. Um, everything right now is so based on these abstract theories that it can 't possibly get it right, and then you have the, you know again the people and institutions in power seeking some kind of objective you know, magical, spiritual reality to base their own projects on. And so we're totally at a loss if we don't do something, you know, uh, against that. And one more thing, <laughs> sorry, yeah. one more thing, which is that, you know, then you, you also have people who are completely unprepared, you know, leftists and liberals and progressives, whatever. So you have people speaking about Rudolf Steiner or Dasklos or you know, these sort of major and important figures, and they get sort of ridiculed or smeared, um, you know, because leftists and liberals aren't prepared to try to understand the truth of any of it. And so it just gets sort of dismissed. And (laughs) so we have that, that challenge ahead of us as well. So questions of meaning, questions of adversarial forces, questions of not falling just into abstraction, questions of the the spiritual being that's calling on us right now. These are all really big and important uh, projects. And as anthroposophists, we also cannot neglect the importance and the meaning and the value that other theoretical systems and frameworks have given to people, whether it's psychoanalysis, postmodern philosophy, Marxism, Rudolf Steiner certainly took all those things, well, it, postmodern philosophy didn't really quite exist then, except as the occult. Um, <laughs> but the, Rudolf Steiner certainly took all these things very seriously and encountered them because he knew they were important to people. And so I think that that's on us as well. Like, we can't just live in the anthroposophical bubble and be like, well, screw all these other theories. I got the right way, you know? I mean, it just doesn't work. And that's the the sort of, um, whether it's the, the, the problem of the Essenes or... Um, if you want to call it Luciferic or whatever, it just doesn't work, you know. So, so that's my really long answer to your question, <laughs> but it's an important question, you know. Thanks to everybody for listening to my rant.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, that was that was super and amazing, and I, I feel like yeah, we can be blind to to what's being used and done um, with the occult and with um, spirituality by people that maybe. I don't know, aren't working necessarily on behalf of humanity um, or in mm-hmm. service to humanity is really the way that I would put it. And that's gonna leave us blind and also not really seeing that others are working in that way, in a positive way and, and rejecting it because it's not anthroposophy is also problematic. So um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess what, if I'm gonna do something like, so we get off, you know, we get off this podcast and I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta take a step. What am I gonna do? What would you, mm. what would you suggest there?
1: Um, as someone who's new to anthroposophy or as someone who's been in it for a while?
0: I don't know. I mean, either or.
1: <laughs> well, someone who's new, um, like, say you don't want to take on like the connection between bees and Venus or, you know, <laughs> that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, um or or you have political issues maybe with some of the stuff that Rudolf Steiner said or whatever. I, I would say just talk to the dead, like start there. That's the easiest and one of the most important things that you can do. And it, there are all kinds of like rituals and um, you know, the, the right kinds of words, you know, um, according to anthroposophy and other traditions, esoteric traditions and Christian traditions, but just, Just start now. Like you don't have to know that stuff. I mean, the only thing I would warn against is, you know, talking to the dead by being like, "I wish you were here. Please come back." You know, don't do that. Because and 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 don't have like a séance, because those things are not not so great. Um, But but to just talk to them. Hey, what's up? You know, and wait for the answer. And sometimes the answer just comes instantly, and they're your voice to them is them speaking and their voice to you is you speaking, which is very kind of like a a weird thing to sort through. And it's much more complicated than that. I'm being really reductive there, but pay attention to that weird, strange sort of backwards reversal, but just start talking to them. It's, it's so easy. It, and it's absolutely a hundred percent necessary right now. And you can, if you have a problem that you're dealing with in your life that you really can't, it's not good to go to the dead for every little problem. Like how do I put the vacuum cleaner bag in? You know, like you don't want to do that, but like go, go to the, you know, go to them for problems that you're having in your life. They want to help, you know, and they can hear your thoughts anyway. So um, just start.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. and And if people are looking for resources on that, I can say that on our website the anthroposophical society in our webinar area we have so much on working with the dead um Mm. and even Mm. just like a free webinar on staying connected and i would suggest if you want more information on that that's really good and talks about why it's important too it's not just personally important um it's 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 Mm. about the wisdom and the um, goodness that is there that can support the challenges that are happening right now. So I I, I think that's a good step as an experienced or someone that's kind of new. Do you have anything else that you would wanna say
1: about that? Um, Yeah, I I would also say, um, this is gonna be a hard one for people, but people who are sort of more anthroposophically inclined. Right now, it's really important to only have uh, pleasurable and loving thoughts about the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. Um, so catch yourself. That doesn't mean that you can't, with a sense of that famous anthroposophical word, equanimity, that you can't look upon the problems that may arise or that are present with equanimity. But so much of what's happening right now is based around a distorted and incorrect uh, appraisal of how bad things are you know lots of people are you know hanging out in their houses and you know eating a peach and like as they're taking a bite out of the peach freaking out about the world you know and it's like just you know like just eat the peach just yeah and, and I, don't, peach. I I don't mean mindfulness I just mean like actually look at your situation. Like, is it being affected, you know, aside from some of the sort of social regulations and, and, and control that's happening right now. But so first of all that, and, and then what that challenges you to do is to create a moral response to other people's suffering rather than a sort of panicked non-response. You can say, um, well, that's not affecting me. I'm eating a peach, but you then create uh, a connection with a moral impulse to people who are suffering, rather than simply having it selfishly have to, you know, artificially relate to you through anxiety, you know? So um, I think that that's one thing, but what I meant about the, the positive thoughts about the future, we're so limited in what is available to us as options right now. And that is because anxiety is a constricting force. It's a repetitious mantra, um, and it is what we are being asked to do right now. It's constant anxiety, uh, a constant form of, uh, you know, uh, suffocated repetition. Repetition can be a really great thing for learning, but right now, Uh, It's this kind of rocking back and forth, rocking back and forth, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, or whatever it might be, you know, (laughs) it's like, if you saw, Mm -hmm. uh, if you saw, you know, 10 million people sitting in a room, rocking back and forth, saying their anxious thoughts about Donald Trump, you'd be like, oh, they're worshiping him, right, you know, Mm -hmm. so, so that's the movement of anxiety, it's completely constricted, and it's an overtaking of the rhythmic system and the etheric body in a lot of ways. Now, some anthroposophical physician will listen to this and be like, that's not what it is. is it? Okay, but fine. <laughs> it's, it's fine. They're, they're right, I'm wrong, but like, you get the point that I'm making, right? Yeah. So, um, so instead... <laughs> For yourself, not out of delusion, but out of the recognition that you are participating, that you can change and control—well, maybe not control, but you can change and move things in a new direction because we have free will and we have freedom. Direct your thinking, and and create the thoughts—the you know the the cast-off objects of the process of thinking. Create thoughts that are. Uh, about a future that is loving, and that is pleasurable, and, um, you know, that creates new options for people. It will certainly create new options for you, and we need more people doing that right now, for sure, for sure, for sure, and, uh, and it's also difficult. Um, it's also a task, and a, and a trial, and a challenge that can align us with the right spiritual forces, And there are right ways and wrong ways to do it. But as a blanket statement, I think that that's something that is good for us to do right now.
0: You know, we can keep putting out images and imaginations of dystopia um, or we can try something different. And you can do that even just in the micro level, just when you wake up and you think about your day, Um, you can carry that in a dystopian way or in a way that affirms that life is there. So... um, Yeah. So, so much work to do. We, gosh, we could really, we could like have a whole episode just on that
1: (laughs) for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a terrible future for both of us. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I I think what one of the really shocking things about this sort of new age self-help movement is that it's true. You know, Mm -hmm. it's really annoying that that stuff is true because like as as someone who's like encountered it when I was younger, I was like, who are these people? They're so annoying. They're always wearing like silk scarves and talk talking about how to get a Lamborghini, you know? Um, but, (laughs) but it works, which is, you know, crazy. And I think that, um, There's a lot of anthroposophical actually work done on that, and Rudolf Steiner talks about it himself many times, but not, you know, not in a direct way. Like, he's not talking about the secret or whatever, but he does talk about the importance of, you know, what we create in our thoughts, And, um, and not all of us just We're not all going to get to that heart thinking. Like we're not going to all get to living thinking. We're not all going to get to creating a new etheric body for ourselves or any of those kinds of things. Like, so some of us will in this lifetime, but like, let's stop pretending that that's, you know, something that's achievable for everybody. Sorry, let me, let me step back because I love the Rudolf Steiner quote, like never talk about the limits of humanity, only talk of your own. So perhaps it is possible for us all to do that. um, And perhaps we all will do that. And that is my pleasurable and loving imagination of the future on display right there, stopping myself and, and, and correcting. However, let's also not condemn other people for not doing enough um, when these simple and smaller things actually they really, really matter. They really matter talking to the dead and you know, re-rooting, re enhearting <laughs> your your imagination of the future.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Connor. It's been amazing talking with you.
1: I know. Thank you. It's the first conversation we've had where I've done most of the talking, so thank you. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That sums it up everybody. All right. (laughs) All right. Um, I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. And thanks for your work. Thanks for joining us. Check out our sponsor, Educare Do. It's a nonprofit volunteer run organization that offers accessible, experiential, self-directed distance learning courses based on the principal ideas of Rudolf Steiner. The courses are designed to awaken an individualized relationship to anthroposophy through readings, experiments, creative activities, and exercises towards inner development. Over 3,500 students from 30 countries have participated in their 26th lesson course in the Foundations of Anthroposophy. They also have several other anthroposophical courses available in different subject areas. The foundation year only cost around 260 U.S. dollars, and as a sponsor of the podcast... will be donated to the ASA, the Anthroposophical Society in America, for every individual enrollment in any of their courses using the code ASA. There's so many possibilities for learning more about Anthroposophy, and this podcast is one of them. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us today on The Anthroposopher. Stay tuned for our next episode.